Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. You got Chicago, for example. They already have plenty of very strict gun laws, some of the strictest in the country. 47 people shot there over the Memorial Day weekend. Nine of them died. So which law would have prevented any of that? All right, well... Do do we think that all these people in Chicago who are shooting each other are legally buying their guns? So here's, here's a couple of examples for you. I was just talking about the red flags law. Um... There are some examples here of how they've prevented tragedies. In California, a study showed that a California red flag law has assisted in the prevention of 21 mass shootings between 2016 and 2018. Uh, Florida, since passing a red flag law in 2018, there have been notable cases of few of, of the law intervening in multiple cases of potential violence. Uh, of potential violence. Uh, in C- Connecticut and in Indiana, for for every 10 to 20 preventions under the red flag laws, there was one fewer death than than would otherwise have been expected. So when it enacted, it does help. There are things that we can do. And one of the things that the the president talks about with expanding expanding the background checks, if we're able to do that, we are going to take uh, more guns out of the hands of criminals. And that is incredibly important. So there are things here uh, that can be worked out, that can be done, that is not going to prevent every tragedy, but will take us to a better place so we can protect our, our family. To say there is no specific person is not a satisfactory answer. When you have senior uh, assistance to the president, mm-hmm. there's a paper trail, I'm sure, about briefings to the president. There's a domestic policy council. There's a chief of staff. At some point, we need to know who would have been the most likely person to talk to. Him about I think what, what I'm trying to say, there are so many issues that come up uh, that is presented Certainly. to the president, as you know, you've covered you've covered many administrations, and there are just regular channels that that happen that it go to the president. Like it's evasive mm-hmm. to not have the most senior people in the White House willing to say, "I had a conversation with the president about it," or "I had," or "We talked about it in this context or that context," and we're also all reporting on the consumer side of it, of what you're doing, of putting out and trying to get information. But we're also trying to understand the information flow in this White House, and it's important for us to get that answer, which is why we're going to keep asking it until we get that answer. No, you you have every right to keep asking. That's why I'm here. Look, really, Kelly O, he's briefed on countless priorities. Uh, He is the President of the United States. There are regular channels. Uh, He is briefed by his senior White House uh, staff. Um, and that is just the so process that we have. Staff, I, I'm, I'm not going to confirm who it was. I'm just letting you know that there are regular channels that we use. Um, and, uh, you know, it's senior, again, senior White House staff that when elevate issues to him uh, when the time comes. And they're just regular channels. And that's that's what I have for you, for you to share there. Yeah. So you, you did February 17th was the recall. February 18th, FDA issued uh, instructions to states. Let's, let's 
Can we continue that through April? When did somebody call the White House to say, this is a problem, you guys may need to get involved? So I could say that, um, again, the recall happened on the day, day one of the recall, we took action as a whole of government approach, right? There was someone called here at the White House to say, this could be an issue that requires presidential I, involvement. So I don't have the timeline on that. I, all I can tell you as a whole of government approach, we have been working on this since the recall in February. The independent regulatory agency, the FDA, the one that questions have been referred to in the past is now being embraced as whole of government. Let's point that out here. The other thing, why wasn't Abbott invited today? This whole of government you approach. You're doing this now on June 1. If he knew no, about this we in have April. Been do no, no, no. We have been doing this a whole of government approach since since the recall. Yeah, that is what, and it's not, but it's, last month. because That's we had to make sure, do. we had to make sure and really look into what would work. If the president is saying the baby formula manufacturers knew that things would be really bad as soon as the Abbott recalls happened, the shutdown of the plant happened, but he did not, I guess, can you help us understand why they knew, but he didn't? I, I guess that just doesn't address the question of why it was that the president didn't know when the manufacturers are saying that they knew as soon as the recalls happened, as soon as the plant was shut down, that this would be a very serious problem. Who was the person in the West Wing yeah. who decided after six or eight weeks that this baby formula shortage was finally something that somebody should tell the president about? Again, I have to go back and talk to the president. When are you guys going to admit that you were wrong about inflation? <laughs> no easy questions today, huh? Uh, the Treasury Secretary says that she was wrong, so why doesn't anybody okay. here at the White House? Okay, so look. How serious does an issue have to be before it's brought to the president's attention? The president reiterated that he supports the independence of the Federal Reserve. He called on Congress to pass uh, tax credits, and he also called again for changes to the tax code to bring in more revenue to drive down deficits. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but these proposals aren't exactly new. I mean, we're coming up on a 40-year high. Of Look, I think that the, the what the president has done uh, with respect to communications has been is been to consistently uh, explain to the American people where we are and where we need to go, uh, and that continues to be. Uh, the way that uh, that he approaches this issue, and very much from the perspective of what it feels like to sit around a dining room table or a, a kitchen table uh, in uh, in this country, because that is that's his lived experience, and that's the way that he approaches these economic policy questions. And so he understands that right now the top uh, issue on people's minds uh, is prices, prices at the uh, the gas station, prices at the grocery store, and he's made very clear, and he's communicating very clearly that that's. Uh, his uh, top economic priority, and that we can address this from a position of strength, and that we can make this transition to stable growth without sacrificing all of those gains if we make the right decisions going forward. And so that's, uh, that's what he will continue to do. It's certainly what we'll continue to do in serving him. Gave Americans a false sense of how long these rising prices would, would be here for. Look, I think that this has been a um, an uncertain and unexpected and, uh, and uh, uh, recovery period, uh, historic uh, in, in many ways. And so I think that our focus right now is on what is the right policy uh, to bring prices down without sacrificing all of the economic gains that we have made. There's a lot going on uh, right now, but the idea we're going to be able to 
and I'll click a switch, bring down the cost of gasoline is not likely in the near term, nor is it with regard to food. Um, the former Chrysler Corporation, Stellantis, they are also making similar investments in electric vehicles. Intel is adding 20,000 new jobs for making computer chips. Um, so, uh, you know, lots of luck on his trip to the moon. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, you know. Mr. President, are you going to Saudi Arabia, Mr. President? I'm not sure whether I'm going. I, I... Since I took office, families are carrying less debt. Their average savings are up. A recent survey from the Federal Reserve found that more Americans feel financially comfortable than any time since the survey began in 2013. So, Dave Cullen, I, I got uh, you tweeted something out that I want to uh, point to. I'm not going to read it because we were running a little short of time here. But you tweeted out a thing that said the gun safety movement desperately needs some fresh tactics. And this is the best idea I've heard in years. And it was connected to a piece in The Atlantic, the headline of which really says it all. Students should refuse to go back to school. So I could read from that. I'm not going to. I've heard a lot of people put forward some dramatic things. The, the one, the dramatic example, the dramatic proposal I've heard from people in the last couple of weeks is we need an Emmett Till moment. We need for uh, we need for the American people to see what these children's bodies look like when they've been hit uh, when they've been hit by these uh, by these bullets. Make them face the ugliness of it. It'll be a shocking moment, but the only kind of thing that might shock the system enough to get action. They're, they're different kinds of proposals, those two, but they're both designed to really shock the system in some way. Talk about why you think maybe that those, those are the types of fresh tactics that we're desperately in need of. Yeah, I think we're, we're desperately in need of some um, new fresh tactics and creative thinking. Our lives the same as you did when you were kids, but we can't let you get away with this anymore. Enough is enough. Enough of you telling us that school shootings are a fact of life when every other country like ours has virtually ended it. Enough of you blaming mental illness and then defunding mental health care in this country. Enough of your thoughts and prayers. Enough. Enough. You will not stop us from advancing the Protecting Our Kids Act today. You will not stop us from passing it in the House next week, and you will not stop us there. If the filibuster obstructs us, we will abolish it. If the Supreme Court objects, we will expand it. And we will not rest until we have taken weapons of war out of circulation in our communities. Each and every day, we will do whatever it takes to end gun violence, whatever it takes. What we will do is not fail the children of this country the way that you have failed us. The generations of Columbine, Sandy Hook, Parkland, and Uvalde. I yield back, Madam Chair. So spare me the bullshit about well, constitutional rights. Well, the gentleman not be, No, I will not yield. And I'm not going to yield for my entire five minutes, so don't ask again.
series of crises. And, you know, the president came in in the middle of a once in a lifetime pandemic, um, you know, on the heels of a, uh, you know, president that trafficked in, in white supremacy and, and extremism. So I think the writing was on the wall um, to kind of come in with urgency. And we don't always see that from the White House. Political party, the Republican party said, don't take the virus. Don't, don't, get the, vaccine, don't get the vaccine. vaccine. Don't get the vaccine. And you've got the leader of that political party actually going around up until this particular day, undermining the fundamentals of this democracy. Everything is rigged. The election was rigged. They should be, put me back in the White House. So that's one of the things that he's got to deal with. There are some prominent black people in key posts, but there's been an exodus of staffers as well. The White House has pushed back on this, uh, but my colleagues have spoken to a number of people who say, like, we, we felt like we were not getting a fair shake here. Our voices were not heard with the administration. What, are, what is your sense of it? Well, let, let me see. Biden is more passionate and committed that a lot of them can keep up with. And the same with Kamala Harris. And sometimes when you have a leader that's saying, let's go, and you have people that want to weigh everything politically, when you have a leader that's saying, well, we're going to do this anyway because it's the right thing to do, therein lies some of the problem. But I really think, and, and, and we've had our days we disagreed. You know, in the 90s, I fought Biden on crime, uh, the crime bill. But I've not seen anyone more passionate on a lot of these things than Joe Biden. And I think Biden himself uh, fought to get this uh, uh, executive order that he signed last week around policing when some of the staff were saying, should we wait until after the midterms? So I, I think it's a question of the staff keeping up with the president in this case. Doesn't mean I'm going to agree with him on everything, but I'm going to give him credit where he's. Yeah, and again, John, we heard the president say essentially the economy in this historical sense the economy is very strong and we've heard over and over i know you do all the time the fundamentals of the economy are still there and they are still strong but again that message if it's getting if it's getting out there people aren't believing it do you because you look at the poll numbers they really are historically very bad with the president's handling of the economy right. are you sensing that the white house is aware of that is this their attempt to try to to respond to that Oh, they're very well aware of it. Uh, the president's been stuck in the low 40s for quite a long time. Uh, they uh, had some hope earlier this year of getting out of it. Uh, and then you've got the war in Ukraine. If you're Jay Powell trying to run this economy, this is a little too good for you. You don't want to see 390,000 new jobs because that increases wage pressure. Wage pressure helps drive inflation. And that takes direct aim at what Powell and the Federal Reserve are trying to do, which is cool this economy just a little tiny bit. So sometimes good news can be too good news, I guess right. is what you're saying. And so yeah. and you, you, mentioned, you, you talk about Jerome Powell and the Fed, and the president, of course, is hoping the Fed can help him and bend the inflation arc as we get for, for American families, number one, but for his own politics. We start this hour with a deeply unsettling newsmaking piece of reporting today in Politico on organized, calculated efforts by the Republican Party that could throw the 2024 presidential election into chaos, a plan with roots deep in Trump world and fueled by the big lie that the last election was stolen by Joe Biden and the Democrats from the supposed rightful victor, Donald Trump. The reporting comes from our old friend Heidi Brisbilla for Politico, and she says this, quote, video recordings of Republican Party operatives meeting with grassroots activists provide an inside look at a multi-pronged strategy to target and potentially overturn votes in Democratic precincts. The plan, as outlined by a Republican National Committee staffer in Michigan, includes utilizing rules designed to provide political balance among poll workers to install party-trained volunteers prepared to challenge voters at Democratic-majority polling places. 
developing a website to connect those workers to local lawyers and establishing a network of party-friendly district attorneys who could intervene to block vote counts at certain precincts. These folks are being trained in what are called workshops by the RNC on how to contest voters, how to contest voting processes, and they're being given new tools that they haven't had before, including, John, a hotline, as well as a website that's being developed by a company named Zendesk. You may be familiar with it. If you've ever been online and wanted a live chat with a live operator on a retail site, they actually are working with that company so that folks who are in these centers can be in real-time contact with uh, lawyers. Chris, that's the story we heard in 2020. No, that is the familiar story. This idea that what drove many Latino voters towards Trumpism in 2020 was this fear of socialism. But what we found now, two years later, is that the way that this country is being polarized, right, with the disinformation, with these really, really toxic culture wars, with the extremism, all of that is feeding off that fear of socialism and communism. I think what was particularly striking was the way that that's playing out in the classrooms, right? You, 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 you see many Latina moms that perhaps were in the sidelines for many years. Um, we found many that were apolitical. We found many that used to be Obama supporters, former Democrats. And now, because of these culture wars, paired with this fear of socialism, they're, they're awake. They're in the school board meetings, right? They're disrupting the school board meetings. And that is because um, they not only believe in these traditional values, but now their paranoia is that this idea of communism is infiltrating the classrooms. And that is sort of the new Latina voter that I'm starting to see in Florida. I think we have a, another piece of sound from the series. Let's, let's take a listen. When Republican Governor Ron DeSantis announced his plan to stop Florida kids from learning too much about America's history with race and racism, he brought special guests. It's so interesting when I covered the governor's race in Virginia, obviously Republican won. It's similar to what I heard, although uh, sometimes when we talk about Florida, we think that's another whole country in and of itself. Completely. And I think that's the key. It is very similar, right? What a lot of these Latina moms are saying, they're regurgitating many of the same talking points you probably heard in Virginia. They're anti-critical race theory. They're anti-LGBTQ issues being taught in schools. They're anti-COVID protections. I think the, the added layer in Florida is, again, goes back to that fear of socialism. Someone like Eulalia Jimenez, who you just saw on the screen, her parents fled communist Cuba. You know? She literally took her kids out of the classrooms because she was paranoid that the communism agenda, she uses the word agenda, was being pushed into the classrooms. So when you pair these culture wars with that fear of communism, that combination, I think, is, again, a different trend that you're starting to see in Florida. And it, woke up people like Eulalia. The interesting thing is, Governor DeSantis, as you saw. This comes at a critical time. The midterms approaching, and according to exclusive reporting from NBC News with um, more than two dozen sources, uh, including many allies of, of the White House, inflation is at record highs. You see he's meeting later today with Jay Powell, the Fed chair. Gas prices up to $6 a gallon in some states. And the president's low approval ratings have really really frightened him and Democrats around the country, uh, especially on Capitol Hill, rattling uh, the president to 
as his own phone numbers fall to near Donald Trump low levels. All of that leaving the president feeling adrift, according to our reporting, looking to sharpen his message ahead of the midterms. According to that reporting from NBC News and interviews with those sources close to the White House. Joining us now is one of the contributors, one of the authors of that piece, I should say, NBC News Chief White House Correspondent Kristen Welker. So, Kristen, talk to me, talk to me about uh, sort of all that all that is spooking the White House right now. And it's getting closer and closer to the midterms and there's less and less time to turn this around. You're absolutely right, Andrea. The White House, this president, really dealing with a cascade of crises right now. Inflation, as you mentioned, the war in Ukraine, of course, that baby formula shortage. One White House official framed it this way, saying, quote, I've heard him say recently that he used to say about President Obama's tenure that everything landed on his desk but the locusts, and now he understands how that feels. So I think that really captures the sentiment here that he is dealing with an extraordinary number of crises at the same time. He's particularly frustrated when it comes to the issue of the economy and inflation. He feels like his message has not broken through enough, Andrea. And he believes that there is a good story to be told. There are strong spots in the economy, like the low unemployment rate. And so he wants to, he wants Democrats to highlight that, to do a better job, frankly, of highlighting that. At the same time, he's trying to increasingly show Americans that he feels their pain. He's out with that op-ed today in the Wall Street Journal saying that inflation is going to be his top priority. He's meeting with the Fed chair today and he's going to, I am told, stress the independence of the Fed, but also stress that he has a plan to try to lower uh, inflation as well. Now, administration officials have said they hope that inflation starts to come down by the fall. But of course, Andrea, there are just no guarantees when it comes to inflation. And so Democrats, this administration, this president increasingly worried about all of this and the impact that it could have on the midterm elections. Now, as communications messaging is complicated. Carlos, let's talk about the economy because new polling from NBC shows that only 33% of Americans approve of Biden's handling of the economy. But here's the thing. Inflation is a problem. There's no doubt about that. However, the American consumer is forgetting we were in financial crisis two years ago. We are in an economic recovery. There are good jobs. There are higher paying jobs. And while inflation is a problem, Americans also saved up a lot of money over the last couple of years. How does Biden tell this story? Because people aren't happy. Really interesting point. David, I want to share a headline from Politico tonight. Quote, the White House has one problem that rules them all. Gas prices. Here's the thing, David, no matter what the president does, he does not control the price of gas. And we are having to pay more for gas, not just here, all around the world because of the war in Ukraine. Does the American consumer know or care? Because I remind our audience, while people are mad about gas prices, we're expecting a record number of vacationers, travelers this summer. Right. So people are going to pay the price to do what they're going to do. But listen, I've been in the White House uh, when you've had high gas, gas prices, not this high. <laughs> uh, and it's it, you can explain all you want about why it is and what you're doing to mitigate. And as you said, Stephanie, there's very little a president can do. But you get to this uh, sort of five, six, you know, there's some places where it's seven dollars. Um, you know, it yesterday, the hammer was supposed to finally come down. I'm talking, of course, about the much-hyped, long-awaited verdict in the Durham investigation. But instead, it was time to cue the sad trombone soundtrack.
as the jury came back with an acquittal for the Clinton campaign lawyer, Michael Sussman, who'd been charged with a single count of lying to the FBI. Now, just to refresh your memory here, the Durham investigation was created by former Attorney General Bill Bard, pumped up relentlessly by ex-President Trump as the crime of the century. Now, the goal was to investigate the investigators, a classic deflect and project strategy, weaponized by the power of the presidency. The folks over at Fox News obligingly hyped up the Durham investigation big time. Get this, according to LexisNexis transcripts, they've mentioned it at least 625 times on their air since 2019. The repetition reflects the alternate reality that gets created by partisan echo chambers. But as it became evident that the trial was going sideways, right-wing media was already primed to explain away an acquittal, blaming the jury as biased and saying it contained Hillary Clinton donors. But this wasn't a close call. It was a fast six-hour deliberation followed by a unanimous verdict. But the reality-based media and partisan media play by different rules. And there are still a lot of partisan dupes who are committed to the belief that Russia's interference in the 2016 election was a hoax. Now, if you meet one of those folks, and I'm sure you have, remind them this isn't a matter of opinion. It's an established fact, because the alternate facts crowd has their own echo chamber and amplification system. That's why these partisan accusations without evidence should be treated with extreme skepticism, and why actual verdicts must be required. Our politics, the media jerk off of the week. So hot.
gone after everyone. He's gone after the, the Tampa Bay Rays for daring to go against his um, uh, him on guns, for speaking out against him. The man is on a tear. He's gone after the Special Olympics. Um, is there any way to stop this? He's gone after trans kids. It's a full-on war at this point against anyone who opposes him. Joy, you ask the most important question because for 246 years in this country, the answer to that question, is there any way to stop this, would have been, well, yes. You can stop it at the ballot box this November. I'm not so sure that even if the will of the voters calls to end this madness that's happening in Florida, it would come to pass because Florida, I don't think, is a democracy anymore. I think if Florida is truly an authoritarian state modeled after Hungary, Orban, where, by the way, the Conservative Political Action Committee had their conference this year, because in Ron DeSantis, they are trying to establish that type of authoritarian leader who will eventually run for president of the United States. Absolutely. And, Dean, I mean, it, mm -hmm. there is a model for that. It's called Texas, which is also not a small <laughs> de-democratic state. Even with, you know, it is very hard to vote. It is very hard to dislodge this minority rule leadership. And it almost doesn't matter what the people there want. Florida is the same thing. And the Republican Party is trying to roll that out nationwide. We're going to be seeing refugees from Florida seeking freedom coming to New York. And you're welcome here. We'd like to have you here in our state. Look, they're making it to Santa Stan. It's going to be yeah. the worst Disney ride ever where he runs it. He is banning books, banning black history, banning saying the word gay, banning hormone therapy for transgender teens, which is just cruelty because parents have to agree to it. The studies have shown that teens who are transgender will get hormone therapy, 40% less likely to commit suicide or a suicide attempt. He knows that. He doesn't care. It's cruelty. It's, it's the idea like Trump, the idea let's prey on those who are vulnerable instead of helping them. And the, the base, which talks about being pro-life, haha, ha uh, doesn't care about the sanctity of life. They don't care about children. They don't care about people in need. So look, I, I'm worried. I look at Florida. I look at uh, Ron DeSantis being groomed to be the next grand wizard of the GOP on a national level. And we should all be alarmed by what yeah. I'm trying to do in Florida nationally. Very alarming. John, I don't want to get cynical here. I do want to be honest with our viewers because we will report on measures that pass a Democratic-controlled House but don't have the votes to pass the Senate and becoming, become law. So, so what is the reality of the effort? What is still alive? What might still get through? Jim, it's not cynical at all. It's simply telling the truth. Look, mm -hmm. I think the White House goal for the Biden speech last night was to prevent the issue from fading away as it's done after some past mass mm -hmm. shootings where yeah. there's a brief flurry of talk about negotiations then the heat goes down and the issue goes away. As a senior administration official told me this morning, I think the president kept the heat on Republicans. But they know that they are now facing an extremist Republican Party on this issue. Consider this. The president talked last night about an assault weapons ban. They passed it in 1994. They had nine Republican senators vote for that assault weapons ban. Republicans did not filibuster. When you then move ahead to uh, 2013, after the Newtown massacre, Republicans did filibuster and blocked it. Only four Republicans voted for even background checks. That wasn't an assault weapons ban. And so, as you indicated, the discussions that are going on on Capitol Hill, this is not about finding a middle ground compromise because Republicans aren't anywhere close to the middle ground. The question is whether they will give an inch or two or three on red flag laws, for example. Uh, it's a very difficult fight, but from the White House and Democratic perspective, You've got to wage it. You've got to wage a public argument. 
And if you can't get it done, as the president said last night, you count on voters to uh, respond. It's this is a very, very tough issue for them, given what I want to know from you is, are there any Republican senators, let alone 10, who would face consequences from the voters if they don't act on guns? But between uh, universal background checks, red flag laws, raising the age, maybe codify the banning of the bump stock, those are things that can be done. And I don't think these senators, Republican or Democrat, would pay a political price for supporting them because those proposals are broadly supported by the American people. So, Paul, some people have been very optimistic about the, the chance for change. Um, and you heard Laura and I speaking moments ago, we have to be optimistic, right? We, we, let's hope something happens. Are you one of those people? Are you like us? Well, I'm what the prophet Zechariah called a prisoner of hope. I have no choice but to hope because I love my country and I believe in it. Right. But to answer the question you asked Charlie, the answer is no one. So Americans are going to have to decide. You know, GOP stands for guns over people. And if, we, if, if, if people don't lift up the ballot box, we're just going to keep carrying coffins. What is that for what you just said? The GOP stands for guns over people, right? I can hear that coming up in the election. Right. It's a, is that a campaign ad for Democrats? I hope so. I hope so. I, and, and the president hinted at that today, tonight when he said, make this outrage central to your vote. That's the problem. Everybody says we need it. Only people who vote on it are the people at the most extreme fringe. A again, I say this as a gun owner and a hunter, and most gun owners and hunters support exactly what President Biden is trying to do. The problem is not the NRA. It's not. It's that Republican politicians are so fearful of their base, and we the people have to show them that if they vote against protecting our kids and our cops and our neighborhoods and our churches and our synagogues and our grocery stores, if they vote against guns. And today we got some of the first general election ads from Democrats in this upcoming cycle. And some Democrats appear ready to make Republicans pay a political price for their controversial stances on things like guns and abortion. Take a look at this new ad from Democratic candidate for Georgia Governor Stacey Abrams. For years, Brian Kemp has taken Georgia backwards. He put us backwards on guns, said law enforcement, and made it easier for criminals to carry guns in public. He rolled back women's rights, vowing to make abortion a crime with 10 years in prison. Just when we need to move forward, Brian Kemp keeps taking us back. It is rare to see Democrats in swing states actively putting guns and abortion at the center of their campaigns. Uh, but this, as you very well know, is not going to be your typical election cycle. Today, we got another bold ad from Democratic Kentucky Senate candidate Charles Booker. And I must warn you that there is some disturbing imagery in this ad. And the ad opens with a trigger warning, but not because anybody in the ad is going to start pulling the trigger. Watch this. The pain of our past persists to this day. In Kentucky, like many states throughout the South, lynching was a tool of terror. It was used to kill hopes for freedom. It was used to kill my ancestors. Now, in a historic victory for our Commonwealth, I have become the first black Kentuckian to receive the Democratic nomination for U.S. Senate. My opponent, the very person who compared expanded health care to slavery. The person who said he would have opposed the Civil Rights Act. The person who single-handedly blocked an anti-lynching act from being federal law. The choice couldn't be clearer. 
do we move forward together? Or do we let politicians like Rand Paul forever hold us back and drive us apart? In November, we will choose healing. We will choose Kentucky. A very powerful ad there. And we should note that while Senator Rand Paul did, in fact, block that anti-lynching bill last year, uh, he did go on to support a narrower version of the bill this year. Joining us now to tell us what all of this means for the midterms is Democratic pollster and MSNBC contributor Cornell Belcher. Mr. Belcher, it's great to have you on. Uh, good to see you again. Let me start by asking you about uh, that Stacey Abrams ad that I just played. Is it smart for Democrats to center issues like gun control and abortion rights in a swing state like Georgia front and center of their campaign? No, I, absolutely it is. I think, it, you know, Democrats have to change the, the fundamental dynamic uh, of the midterm, and they're not going to do that unless they, unless they get, get jarring and, and throw the long ball. I'm at my house. I can do whatever I want with my guns. Yeah, as you're hearing it there, as the congressman waved around those guns, Democrats expressed concern about his safety. Joe tweeted about that moment, saying this, quote, this is the Republican Party of 2022. Extremists freaks, insurrectionists, conspiracy theorists, and authoritarians. Whatever you call them, don't call them conservative. They stopped being that a long time ago. Donnie Deutsch, let's just, I turn the floor to you here. Your reaction to Joe's tweet, of course, but also that spectacle we saw from that Repu Republican congressman. What's wrong with these people? They're mentally what, ill. What is wrong with these laws? But you look at a spectacle like that. You look at a, at a Florida congressman behaving like an utter ass on, on television, brandishing these weapons, um, you know, doing things to make him look like he not only has way too many weapons, but doesn't actually know how to operate them. This extreme position that somehow taking away a magazine that can kill 30 children in less than two or three minutes is a-okay. That there's, he's so proud of the 30 round magazine that he wants to show everybody that he has one. So that's extremism. Now, on the other side is change. Um, and I, I don't want to lose sight of that. I think there's a lot of Americans that are so focused right now on the pain at the grocery store and the pain at the pump that they are willing to look the other way on extremism because they White House, as much as the president still is trying to reach across the aisle on certain issues, giving the benefit of the doubt to Mitch McConnell more so than, frankly, most of his own staff would like him to, we have heard him talk about ultra-mega, extreme-mega, trying to paint them as the party that is so extreme uh, on these issues. I think we're going to have those attacks ramped up. Go further than the word extreme, and ultra is a positive word. Make it, make it maniac. Crazy, mega, maniac. Yeah, yeah, that's Welcome back. One of the most high-profile, salacious court cases in recent memory is over. Johnny Depp and Amber Herb were both found liable for defaming each other. So Depp ended up with a little over 10 million while Herb got 2 million. Now some people call the verdict a big win for Depp and a blow to the Me Too movement and vice versa. So is it just that people now have to find something else to do? Because you know they're not going to pay the same attention to the, the January 6th committee. You know, this, people are not going to be all into that. So is it People need a spectacle? Is this why yes. people are asking these questions? <laughs>
just don't like the celebrity spectacle of it because, like Whoopi said, more people care about the January uh, care about this than they will about the January sixth uh, hearings next week in the next couple of weeks, which is actually about defending our democracy and an insurrection that infects all of us in this country, not some stupid celebrity trial. When, you know, when they're you know yelling and sniping at each other, I just I, think that we we need not to to minimize those. I things. do not Cheap watch it. this at all. Z Z I have nothing. Yeah. But I do know that Donald Jr. and Megyn Kelly and a few others think that Johnny Depp was right. So take what you can from that. <laughs> That's all I have to say about it.
I want to talk about the gun perspectives of the left in just one second and Joe Biden's peculiar comments on guns because the man knows less about guns than he knows about pretty much anything else. And yet, like all men who are too confident about their own abilities, he seems to believe that he knows a lot about the things he knows nothing about. He's like the confidence guy on the, on the, he's the 12th man on the basketball team who just, for unjustified confidence. He just is going to go in there. He's going to chuck up threes. And it doesn't matter that he hasn't made a three in about two years. He's just going to go in there chucking because he thinks he knows things. We'll get to that in a second. But I think in order to understand Joe Biden and the left on guns and what they think they are doing, I think that really you have to understand that we have now reached a point in American life where a large segment of the country believes that people who disagree with them are the actual enemy and a severe threat to their neighbors. It's really a problem. It's, it's really troubling. And it is clearer than ever that this is, in fact, the perspective, certainly of the mainstream media and, of course, many of their devotees, as well as their allies in government and politics. The reason that I say this is because there's an article that had wide traffic over the weekend, and it was from the Associated Press, and it was titled Christian Nationalism on the Rise in Some GOP Campaigns. And this has been sort of the new watchword. You've seen a lot of these watchwords that have been spouted by the left to conflate it with mainstream conservative white supremacy is supposedly mainstream conservatism. Christian nationalism is supposedly mainstream conservatism. And what is happening here is an enormous number of people in the media are being deliberately sloppy about their terminology. And they're being deliberately sloppy about that terminology because the idea is if I can paint my political opponents with the ugliest possible brush, if I can use large scale terms that don't really apply to them, and I can apply them to them, then I can make them seem as though they are derelict, as though they are bad people, as though they are just somehow morally negligible in, in some way. And that is the pattern here. And once you realize that a lot of Americans see their fellow Americans, their neighbors as threats to them, like real true threats to who they are, then you understand that all policy making is directed at changing the system to protect them from you. That's what this is all about. And I think in order to even understand that, you have to understand that there is a significant difference in how Americans today even think of themselves in terms of their core identities. So there's a great book that I've referred to often by Carl Truman called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. I think it's the best book of the last 10 years. And in it, he basically argues that there is an old-fashioned view of what makes you you, of how you construct your identity. The way that people typically used to construct their identity is you were born. You're born into a system of embedded customs and laws. You're born into a community. It pre-existed you. It'll go on after you. And you were born as a biological being with certain limitations and certain potentials in this community. And then it was the job of your parents and society to civilize you. And this is the way that I would say traditionally religious people raise their kids. The way that you raise your kids is to abide by certain rules and to occupy and inherit certain roles. And this is going to make you, not for everybody, but for the vast majority of people, a happier and better and more well-rounded and fulfilled human being. Now, you're civilized because when you have kids, kids are, they're little barbarians. I mean, I've talked about this many times on the show. I have three kids, eight, six, two, and they're wonderful and they're innocent and they're also barbarians because kids are by nature barbarians and they have to be civilized and they have to be taught things. That is one perspective on how you create an identity. Your identity is not just how you feel on the inside and it's not just you as widget of society. It's the in-between, right? It is how you as an individual interact with society and that interaction is what creates you as a human being. And so we have all sorts of civilizing institutions that are meant to help mold you to the society and help society help you fit in. And we have all sorts of rules and roles and responsibilities that are put upon you and that make you feel fulfilled when you actually do those things. Hey, that is the traditional way that people have identified throughout history. And then over the course of the last 50 years in particular, beginning a couple of hundred years ago, there's a new idea of what identity means. And this identity is constructed entirely by you. 
It is based on your subjective feeling about yourself. There's a free-floating you. And it is, it is your inner feeling, your sense of yourself. And that sense of yourself is the only thing that matters. It's your, authentic, your authenticity, your authentic sense of you. And your authentic sense of you cannot be bound by rules and roles and institutions. In fact, any sort of foreign imposition on the true you is really a denial of what you are. And therefore, the more institutions we overthrow, the more rules and roles we blow up, the better, particularly traditional rules and roles, right? New rules and roles that we kind of construct whole cloth, that's a different thing because you're part of that construction. But if you inherited rules and roles, we have to assume that those are shaping you in nefarious and evil ways. And so the best way for you to be truly free, for you to be truly authentic, is to get rid of those rules and roles. And so we have now an entire society or a large segment of American society that is directly oriented against the traditional institutions, rules, and roles that characterize healthy living and healthy maturation in a, in a growing and healthy society. We have an entire group of people in the United States who truly believe that you are a threat to them and all of your traditional institutions are a threat to how they feel on the inside. And therefore, they're going to tar you with slurs like you're a white supremacist or you are a Christian nationalist if you just don't believe the things that they believe. Because you are morally bad. You are a threat to them. And this is why you hear people on the left constantly talking about microaggressions and you're a threat to me and your words are threatening me. How can my words threaten you? Well, only if your subjective sense of self is you, right? Because then if I refuse to accept your subjective sense of self as an objectively verifiable metric in the real world, this means that I'm attacking you in some way. What this means is that a huge segment of society particularly is oriented against traditional religion and against traditional religious values. And so what the, what the left has basically decided to do is characterize what used to be known as just mainstream politics in the United States, namely a, a broadly Christian people because this America is traditionally a very religious country by European standards, much more religious than the Europeans. We, it used to be that America was a place that had very few enforceable legal rules, but lots of enforceable social, social mores. That, that you had a community and you were embedded in that community and your church basically is what civilized you to live inside society. Your community did this and you didn't need that many laws, particularly at the national level in order to enforce that because there was a lot of broad-based commonality. And then when you had people come along and said, you know what, all of those, all of those institutions, the family, the church, the community, all these are, in, they are impositions on who you are. They have to be blown up. They have, in order for us to be truly free, we have to blow these things up and we can reconstruct ourselves ground up free floating. This means that what used to be sort of traditionally accepted is now considered Christian nationalism. This is what strikes me about this associated press piece. I know we're going a little deep here, but it's really important. Because to understand what's happening above the waterline in American politics, you have to understand what's happening at the bottom of the iceberg. And so according to the Associated Press, here's how this manifests. The Associated Press, which is a left-wing press outlet, here's what they write. The Victory Party took on the feel of an evangelical worship service after Doug Mastriano won Pennsylvania's Republican gubernatorial primary this month. As a Christian singer led the crowd in song, some raised their arms toward the heavens in praise. Mastriano opened his remarks by evoking scripture. God uses the foolish to confound the wise. He claimed Pennsylvania's freedom would be snatched away if his Democratic opponent wins in November and cast the election in starkly religious terms with another, with another biblical reference, let's choose this day to serve the Lord. Now, as a religious person who is not a Christian, right? I'm an Orthodox Jew. The idea that you would, at a campaign stop, say something like, I feel like it's my job to serve God. That is what every religious person I've ever met says about pretty much every day. That is your core identity. Your core identity as a religious person is a person who believes that they have a relationship with God that is bounded by certain rules and moralities and ethics. 
So saying that at a campaign stop does not make you a quote unquote Christian nationalist. Typically, when people say Christian nationalist, what they mean is no one who is not a Christian should be allowed to worship here. And everyone who is not a Christian should be a second class citizen. That would be like a, a pretty good definition of a Christian nationalist. But that's not what is happening in these campaigns. Instead, the idea from the left is if you believe in traditional Judeo-Christian values, and if you believe that some of those values should inform our legislative process, because you have to pick some system of ethics to inform our legislative process, and you can pretend that you have created out of whole cloth a secularist system of ethics, that is not true. You're living off the fumes of Judeo-Christian ethics from 300 years ago. Anybody who pretends otherwise is lying to themselves. But the idea is that if you even mention your religion in the context of public life, this makes you a threat. Now, that is a wild difference from where America used to be 50, 60, 70 years ago. Mentioning the importance of religion in everyday life and the idea of a, of a sort of Christian unified ideal undergirding American morality, that was a commonality from left to right. FDR used to cite this sort of stuff in his speeches. I mean, you want to talk, like, if you took an FDR speech, it completely politically opposed everything that I believe on economics, and you listen to him talk about religion, he sounds a lot like this rally by Doug Mastriano. But according to the Associated Press, if you say this sort of thing now, this makes you a Christian nationalist and therefore evil. Mastriano, a state senator and retired army colonel, has not only made faith central to his personal story, but has woven conservative Christian beliefs and symbols into his campaign, becoming the most prominent example this election cycle of what some observers call a surge of Christian nationalism among Republican candidates. And this is the way that the media launder their own views into these pieces. They have a theory. Their theory is that everyone who opposes them politically is actually a secret theocrat and now we're going to go find a couple of experts to back up what we say. So did they take a poll of the experts? No. Did they take a poll of the American people? No. What they did is they found a couple of people to back up what the authors of this piece want. Mastriano, who has ignored repeated requests for comment from the Associated Press, has rejected the Christian nationalist label in the past. In fact, few, if any, prominent candidates use the label. Some say it's a pejorative and insist everyone has a right to draw on their faith and values to try to influence public policy. Well, yeah, that's because it is a pejorative and everyone does have the right to draw on their faith and values to try to influence public policy. But scholars generally define Christian nationalism as going beyond policy debates and championing a fusion of American and Christian values, symbols, and identity. So the Associated Press is completely insane. You know what else is insane? Walking around without the home and auto, but has woven conservative Christian beliefs and symbols into his campaign, becoming the most prominent example this election cycle of what some observers call a surge of Christian nationalism among Republican candidates. And this is the way that the media launder their own views into these pieces. They have a theory. Their theory is that everyone who opposes them politically is actually a secret theocrat. And now we're going to go find a couple of experts to back up what we say. So did they take a poll of the experts? No. Did they take a poll of the American people? No. What they did is they found a couple of people to back up what the authors of this piece want. Mastriano, who has ignored repeated requests for comment from the Associated Press, has rejected the Christian nationalist label in the past. In fact, few, if any, prominent candidates use the label. Some say it's a pejorative and insist everyone has a right to draw on their faith and values to try to influence public policy. Well, yeah, that's because it is a pejorative and everyone does have the right to draw on their faith and values to try to influence public policy. But scholars generally define Christian nationalism as going beyond policy debates and championing a fusion of American and Christian values, symbols, and identity. So the Associated Press is completely insane. You know what else is insane? Walking around without the home and auto insurance that you actually need. Because if you don't have that home and auto insurance, well, you're sort of begging fate to crush you. Right now would be a great time to reshop your home and auto insurance with Policy Genius because that could lead to savings that can you can put toward your next home renovation or DIY project. Plus, you actually need to protect your life insurance as well. So you can do all your insurance over at Policy Genius. Policy Genius is your one-stop shop to find and buy the insurance you need. Just head on over to policygenius.com slash Shapiro Home to get started. Policy Genius will show you price estimates for policies that fit your search. If you like what they find, it will get you switched over for free. 
Customers who bundled their home and auto policies with Policy Genius saved an average of $1,250 per year over what they were paying. The team at Policy Genius, they're on hand at every step to help you make decisions with confidence. The Policy Genius team works for you, not the insurance companies. Policy Genius does not add on extra fees. They're not going to sell your information to third parties. They've earned thousands of five-star reviews across Google and Trustpilot. So don't be crazy. Go find the lowest rate for your home and auto insurance today over at Policy Genius. Head on over to policygenius.com slash Shapiro Home. Get your free home insurance quotes. See how much you could save. And now listen to how the AP describes Christian nationalism. And what you'll see is they're taking basic ideas about America and they are just saying it's Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism, they say, is often accompanied by a belief that God has destined America, like the biblical Israel, for a special role in history and that it will receive divine blessing or judgment depending on its obedience. That's just called basic biblical belief, period. That doesn't mean that non-Christians can't live here, right? That would make me rather unhappy that being a non-Christian and all. They, they, like, I'm not Christian and I believe that. Like, I, I'm, I'm bemused by the Associated Press's description here. And so if you believe that God has a specific destiny for America, for a special role in history, this means now that you are a Christian nationalist? I mean, wasn't that the basic, take God out of the equation. Isn't that the basic idea of American exceptionalism, that America is an exceptional country with an exceptional destiny? Doesn't Joe Biden say that for God's sake? He just removes the God from the sentence and sometimes he even puts the God in the sentence? That it will receive divine blessing or judgment depending on its obedience. Again, a basic tenet of every faith, which is that there is a relationship between what you do in life and the reward or punishment you receive either now or hereafter. Okay, and then here, and the AP continues. That often overlaps with the conservative Christian political agenda, including opposition to abortion, same-sex marriage, and transgender rights. So now they are saying that if you are a person who opposes abortion or same-sex marriage or transgender rights, this means not that you have some sort of logical or values basis for it. It's because you're a Christian nationalist. They're just creating a slur out of whole cloth and then applying it to people. In other words, if you're in favor of traditional institutions, because that's what you're talking about here, pro-life beliefs, which are generally backed by community, Traditional marriage, generally performed by church, right? This is a church service. Transgender, the, the, the basic notion that men and women exist, which is not even religious in nature. And there are plenty of a-religious people and anti-religious people who believe that men and women exist. Sorry to break it to the Associated Press. But the idea is if you believe any of these and that America has a special destiny or a Christian nationalist now. Quote, researchers say Christian nationalism is often associated with mistrust of immigrants and Muslims. Okay, so what? Like what? First of all, there are a lot of churches in this country that are extraordinarily pro-immigrant. A lot of synagogues too. Second, the, the, the idea that there is mistrust of immigrants and Muslims among Christians, there's a lot of mistrust of Christians among Muslims. I mean, I'm, I'm just confused as to why this is solely applicable to Christian nationalists. This is too broad. Many Christian nationalists see former President Donald Trump as a champion. So if you vote for Trump, look, I mean, look what they're doing here. Here are the things that describe Christian nationalists. Believe America is special. Oppose same-sex marriage, abortion, and, and transgender nonsense. Are critical of immigration, are critical of radical Islam, and voted for Trump. You're now describing at least half of America and maybe more. But what they're saying is that all of that is Christian nationalism. Now, they go on in the article, like buried all the way down in the article, is the reality, which is that they, they actually found, there's a piece of research done by a couple of special professors, very, very special people, finding about one in five Americans align with quote-unquote Christian nationalist views, okay, and uh, believing, for example, that the United States 
should advance biblical values and allow school prayer and religious displays in public places. Again, the fact that that is now considered a Christian nationalist view, that we should allow school prayer and religious displays in public places, not a Christian, I believe all those things. Right, like that's, that is not a Christian. That was the view of the entire United States up till about 1960. But in order to, the reason that this is so, the reason this is so important is because of the conclusion here. Robert Jones, CEO of the Public Religion Research Institute, said January 6th displays were not surprising. According to a recent survey by the Institute, white evangelical Christians were among the strongest supporters of the assertion that God intended America as a promised land for European Christians. Those who backed that idea were far more likely to agree that true American patriots may have to resort to violence to save our country. To my mind, white Christian nationalism is really the threat, said Jones. Hey, you are the threat. You're the threat. Right? And if you And if you don't believe in the values of the left, then you are a bigot and a Christian nationalist. And you are, and and that's why Joe Biden, many people on the left, they look across the country and what they see when it comes to things like the gun debate to take this to policy or the abortion debate to take it to policy or the same-sex marriage debate is the imposition of rules, restrictions, and traditional institutions on your sense of leftist identity, of subjective self-identity. And so you must be stopped. When they see you walk it, when they see you you, you, take it to gun control, because this is now the, the topic of the day. When you, normal person, see your neighbor with a gun, you know your neighbor, you know your neighbor's not a criminal, your first reaction, is it, man, that's scary, or is it, okay, all right, you don't see your neighbor as a threat. It doesn't matter if your neighbor voted Democrat. As long as your neighbor's not a criminal, you don't care. In fact, you probably feel safer because if your neighbor has a gun, it probably means that his house is less likely to be robbed, and if somebody robs your house, you might be more likely to help stop it. But if you're on the left and you see a bunch of rural Texas people with guns, the first thing you think is not, hey, are those law-abiding citizens? The first thing you think is, those people are a threat to me, and now those people have guns. And so the best possible solution is we should disarm everybody. Right? Disarm everybody who could potentially be a threat to me. Because the true threat is all the people who disagree with me and threaten my, sec- my, my sense of self-identity, which in today's day and age largely means sexual self-identity. Okay, that, that is dangerous stuff for a country. No country can really survive that long term. Fuck you, asshole. You asshole. This is why we can't have nice things. You asshole! Are you just an asshole? Is that it? 
Fuck you, you asshole! You ever hear the saying, you run into an asshole in the morning, you ran into an asshole, you run into assholes all day, you're the asshole. Fuck you, asshole. You! You are such an asshole! You are an asshole. You dumb asshole! Asshole! Fucking asshole! Away from me, you asshole. Book, Ali, you argue that an individual right to self-defense with a gun was not provided by the Second Amendment, but by the conservative Supreme Court's interpretation of the Second Amendment in its Heller decision. You also say, quote, there was an original purpose to the Second Amendment, but it wasn't to keep people safe. It was to preserve white supremacy and slavery. Briefly, Ali, how do we know that to be the case for sure? Yeah, so I'm, I'm coming up with that just because I'm reading Patrick Henry and George Mason, who President Biden's addressed the nation on gun violence, emotional and urgent. The president called on Congress to act, saying we cannot fail the American people again. But Biden knows this fight well, and he knows the uphill battle he is facing here. And he's trying to use the power of the presidency to keep up the pressure on Republicans in Congress. The president emotionally pleading with Washington to do something and asking the question that so many Americans ask themselves after every one of these shootings. Will this finally be enough. After consecutive mass shootings, the president overnight addressing the nation with yet another desperate call for action. After three decades of congressional inaction, Biden is painfully familiar with the difficulties of gun reform, blaming Republicans who have been standing in the way. Just take a look at what happened in the House Judiciary Committee just hours ago. Democrats did push through a measure that includes nearly every single thing that the president is asking for, but every single Republican on that committee voted against it. But we begin with an urgent plea on gun control from President Biden in a rare primetime address from the White House using candles as a backdrop, the president urged Congress to act to finally reform gun laws after a series of mass shootings in Buffalo, Uvalde, Tulsa, and dozens of other communities. The imagery of crisis, violence, and grief has become all too familiar in American life. This may have been the most emphatic speech this president has delivered when it comes to guns. Good morning. Impassioned plea. For God's sake, do something. President Biden addressing the nation, saying mass shootings have turned cities into killing fields. You could hear the anger in the president's voice as he called on Congress to pass new gun laws. And a House hearing earlier in the day highlighted the deep divides that remain when Florida Republican Greg Stubbe, appearing remotely, displayed his own gun collection. He also added, I want to make it very clear, and these were the president's words. He said, I'm not about taking away anyone's guns. In fact, we believe we should be treating responsible gun owners as an example of how every gun owner should behave in this country. And then he laid it out. Here's what the president wants to happen in this country. He said, we need to ban assault weapons in this country. We heard the president say this again. He has said this in the recent weeks after previous mass shootings and now uh, after Tulsa has been added to the list here. He, he said once again that we should reinstate the assault weapons ban that passed in 94 with bipartisan support. We know that lasted 10 years. Uh, it was allowed to expire uh, when Republicans were uh, in control. Uh, he talked about the stats after it expired. He said mass shootings went down while the assault weapons ban was in effect. When they expired in 2004, he said those weapons were allowed to be sold again. Mass shootings have tripled. Has our team had time to fact check that? 
David, we think he's citing a New York University study showing a slight decrease in mass shootings when the assault weapons ban was in place and a surge in a decade right after it was uh, allowed to lapse. And in fact, we know we've seen a dramatic rise in mass shootings recently. So that Juanita, Biden offered Congress specifics tonight. But let's get realistic because we have all been here before. Do you think he moved the ball? Because conservative media is already saying it was just a big gun grab. Because gun safety is one issue that all sorts of Americans that don't care about politics or hate politics or hate politicians, they do care about public safety, safety for their children. And Republicans, they don't want this issue to stay in focus. I can't find any Republican who can come on this show with me and talk gun safety, who can explain to me why they think an 18-year-old should, should be able to buy an AR-15. So congressional staffers will continue bipartisan talks on gun safety today. One thing you hear is that around 90% of Americans support background checks. But does that tell the whole story about how much agreement there really is? Joining me now is Harry Etten, CNN senior data reporter. Harry, when we talk about possible areas of agreement, maybe not exactly what you think. Yeah, I, you know, to me, the bigger question is, you know, it's not just how do Americans feel about gun control, but how powerfully do they feel about it? So there's this great question from Gallup, which essentially is, are you satisfied with U.S. gun laws? And if you aren't satisfied or you're dissatisfied, do you want stricter gun laws? Do you want them to be less strict? Only 36%, only 36% of Americans say they are dissatisfied and want stricter gun laws. Get this, 54% say they're either satisfied or they're dissatisfied and actually want less strict gun laws. This to me tells the story because it could be that you want stricter gun laws, but you're generally actually satisfied and this 54% gives it away. Most Americans are either satisfied or they actually want less strict gun laws. That is really interesting. So the majority here doesn't seem to want more safety measures in place. And again, on background checks, the polling says a lot of people think they're a good idea. But when you actually put it to a test on the ballot, Harry. You know, what I love is when you actually look and say, OK, do these polls actually follow where the voters are when they get a chance to vote on it? And back in 2016, there were two ballot measures to expand background checks. One was in Maine, one was in Nevada. Remember, both of these states are right in the middle of the national electorate, right? They're both within a point of the national presidential vote. Look what happened in Maine. Yes, only got 48.2%. The ballot measure actually failed to expand background checks. The majority, 52%, said no. In Nevada, it barely passed, just with a little bit more than 50% of the vote. So you look at those polls that say background checks, 80, 90%. When you look at people actually voting on the measure, it's not anywhere close to that. It's much more of a 50-50. In a new op-ed, the former Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson argues that in order for change to happen, we need an Emmett Till moment. The issue is that there is an assault weapon out there that people can put their hands on. Yeah. They can put their hands on it easier than they can get a, a glass of beer in a bar. Mm -hmm. Kids can get an assault weapon. That's the issue. It's not if people are smoking too much weed. You know that, Laura. You should know that, <laughs> you know? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's not that there's no God in the classroom or in people's lives. You can put it <laughs> through a BS lens if you want to and keep pretending like you don't know that we have an issue with an assault weapon. And I just, this will be the last I have to say on it. 
This weapon, you cannot hunt with it. You cannot go bird hunting with it. It is made to kill and destroy bodies. That's what it does. That's what it's for. And frankly, you can keep all your other guns. You don't have any reason. None of these people can say, look here, this is why we need to have this gun, because they can't show you, because there's nothing left when you shoot it. Mm -hmm. Okay? Let's just start with that. It's not any of these things. It's that we have an issue with a gun that should not be in anybody's hands unless they're a soldier. These poor parents that went through this, um, you know, their kids are not only traumatized, but they have to go through these active drills again. And, and, and the other thing I thought, Matt, remember when all the parents were up in arms about um, CRT, alleged CRT, and they thought that the real danger was discussing race in the classroom? That was the real danger not guns. And so I'd like to see that same energy that we saw from all those parents. Rah, 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 you know, racism. I don't want my kids to feel like oppressors. What, where are those parents? I read when it. And Republicans get in lockstep against gun safety because all they care about is power. That's right. And so I do not think that you can, and, and all everyone's talking about, even with red flag laws, is about temporarily taking guns away. It's a minor solution. Mm -hmm. um, the solution here is, as Whoopi has said, all Not week, a minor solution. Get the AR-15s off the planet, really, in my view. Right. And it just... And, and just get rid of, um, you know, bump stocks, get rid of these weapons of war, and it's not going to happen with Republicans in power. So I'm now with you, Joy. Uh -huh. Get rid of Republicans. Get rid of the party. Um, the party as it stands now, because it's the party of white supremacy. It's the party of insurrectionists. It's the party of... of uh, Massacres at this point. It's the party that you just it, you can't trust. Well, can I just well, that's, that's why wait, I left the wait, Republican Party. That the majority of mass shootings in this country are are committed with handguns, not AR-15s. Wait, how so do you if define you are going, how do you define mass? The shooting? FBI defines mass shootings as four, as or, more. four or more people, more. which are committed with handguns in the majority of this country. So you know what? The argument of just you know banning AR-15s is, is not going to solve the mass, the mass Red, shooting you're problem. You're blowing smoke right now. No, I'm We're, not. Uh, well, yes, you're Let me explain. Why? No, I'm, I'm sorry. Nope, I take not, issue with that. You tell, I'm sick and tired of people making excuses why they can't. It's one gun. Get it off the market. It's one gun. Just, just do that mm -hmm. and do everything else you keep saying you want to do. It's not going to pass Congress. And, and well, then, then we'll sit exactly. around and we'll Charles, let me bring you to this because, you know, I was having a, a conversation with my good friend, uh, Bishop William Barber, and he sort of did another ka thing for me. He, he talked about the fact that, you know, in 1915, Birth of a Nation, which was the first real blockbuster and still is one of the most seen, most watched movies of all time, came on the scene just at the end of the era where Reconstruction died and the troops were pulled out of the South in 1877. And then in 1915, a friend of Woodrow Wilson, the president at the time, translates this, you know, sort of, cre you know, creates this film. Um, and he screens it in the White House and it becomes a huge film. We're going to play a little clip of it here just to show you what it looks like. It literally made the Klan come back after it had been squashed after the Civil War. It, it created a rebirth of the Klan. And of course, lynchings followed because you had this sort of depiction in the media of apocalyptic fear of this black menace. So it, it's not like this is a new thing. It's happened before. Um, what do you make of the fact that it's happening again? 
Well, I mean, I, I think the other guest was exactly right. The NRA has figured out that this works. And there's a blood pact between the Republican Party, the NRA, and the gun makers themselves. And th there's a cycle of money and power that is being churned all the time between those three parties. And the thing is, I mean, I think about, you know, you can do Birth of a Nation was a very, you know, in, you know, interesting way of ginning up that, as you said, then. You had Nixon who said, oh, you know what, we're just going to, you know, we're going to demonize the hippies and the, the black and brown people with this war on drugs. But it was great politics to get more people to vote. It, there's always a purpose for it, you know, either a financial or a political purpose. And I guess I'll ask you the same, um, to comment, Charles, on the same question. The fact that there is no pause or sense of, guilt or a sense of, you know, a pause morally in creating rage that then produces violence, does that... Vaughn, first to you, so what is the very latest from another mass shooting, law enforcement, we're going to be speaking very shortly in Oklahoma about the shooter, the investigation, now underway. Yeah, Andrea, we're waiting these new details from law enforcement any moment now here in Tulsa. What we do know is that there were four civilians that were killed last night here by a gunman who also killed himself upon uh, inflicting gunshot wounds. Uh, this is a situation here in which the gunman authorities say had two weapons on him. One was a, uh, a, was a firearm, another was a rifle here. The exact uh, aspects of this uh, rifle are not known here at this time. And that is what we are hoping to get a better sense of information from law enforcement. Again, this is a situation here in which you're talking about Oklahoma, uh, a state where back in 2020, the governor signed into law uh, what is what's called an anti-red uh, flag law, which would prohibit any uh, local municipalities from being able to implement red flag laws, which would allow in the situation in which a family member or another individual were to raise concerns in the specter of uh, that a particular individual may pose a threat to themselves or others, that law enforcement could go and take possession of those firearms. We do not know the current, the exact situation about this particular individual or what uh, the exact aspects of that rifle were. But what we do know is that this individual entered the second floor of this St. Francis Hospital. It's a sprawling complex yesterday afternoon. Law enforcement has said that he was, uh, it was not a random act of violence, but instead was targeting one specific uh, uh, area. This was an orthopedic center here. Whether he was particularly targeting one individual is not known. But unlike in Uvalde, we know that the response time from police uh, was quite different here. The police say that uh, just three minutes after 911 calls started coming in, that police responded, and it was within four to five minutes. So why are we still having this debate over what to do? Because it seems like that there's a small group of people on Capitol Hill who refuse to listen to the majority of the American people who support common sense gun safety legislation that won't stop every and all mass shootings, but will do something to pre perhaps prevent, prevent some. Um, it, it, we're still having this conversation because um, there aren't enough people who are members of the NRA who agree with common sense gun safety legislation, but don't rise up and say, we need to do this for the safety of our country. Nobody is talking 
about grabbing guns. Nobody's talking about confiscating guns. If you want to buy 15, 20 guns at a, at a Walmart, why shouldn't you uh, submit to a background check? Why, if you're 18, why should you be allowed to get an AR-15? Why shouldn't you have to be 21 and then go through a background check and then, you know, follow um, safe storage laws and things like that? Until the, until the few people on, on Capitol Hill, and I'm talking specifically about Republicans in the Senate, um, pay attention and listen to the majority of the American people and NRA members who say they agree with common sense gun safety legislation, then there will be no change. And you know what, Stephanie? I remember being on the set um, uh, on MSNBC when the news came in 10 years ago this December about what happened in Sandy Hook. And I thought, this is the time. This is the time if babies, little kids, first graders could be killed in their classroom th and we don't do anything about it, then we don't care about children. And then all Parkland happened. And now Uvalde has happened. And so and the folks on Capitol Hill who are yammering on about, well, we're having talks, unless they do something, we're going to see more of this carnage.
Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight, this is a Fox News alert facing almost certain defeat for his party in the midterm elections five months from now. Joe Biden has become desperate. He's decided to leverage the murder of 19 children in Texas last week for political advantage. He just spoke at some length from the White House about the need to disarm the population. We're going to spare you all of it. We've taken a, a few select sound bites that sum up the president's message. Here so to summarize the president's remarks tonight, your constitutional rights are not absolute, but in taking them away, we're not actually taking away your rights. We're protecting children, to which you might ask, am I a threat to children? That question is never answered by the president. The point of this, of course, is to disarm people who did not vote for Joe Biden. And that is why simultaneous with this, this effort to recategorize the guns in your closet as felonies, Democrats have been failing to prosecute gun crimes in our cities where most of the crime is. And if you're at all confused about whether the effort here is selective, if this is enforcement only at certain people, you'll notice the president never mentioned the apparent federal gun felony his own son committed when he lied on a federal background form when he bought a handgun. Didn't mention that. Just Department has completely ignored it. Instead, Biden's fellow Democrats in the House of the Representatives spent the day debating ways to disarm you, Americans who've committed no crime at all and want only to... Turn it up! Turn it on! What are you doing? Bro, we live here. You can't demolish this place. Calm down. I just want to destroy the first floor. You want to destroy... The whole thing will come down. <laughs> That's the slippery slope fallacy. Nice. Uh, correlation is not causation. Become a member at freedomtunes.com for exclusive cartoons. What is a woman? Can you tell me that? <laughs> well, you're at the Women's March. You must have some idea. Please, if, if one person could tell me what a woman is. You are not here for women. We ask you to leave. What is that? I'm a husband. I'm a father of four. I host a talk show. I give speeches. I write books. I like to make sense of things. A woman is not anything in particular. There is not one particular thing. It could be many things to many people. Some women have penises, right? Some men have vaginas. I like scented candles. And I've watched Sex and the City. Yeah. How do I know if, if I'm a woman? That's a great question. You're not a scientist. You're not a gender studies major. No. How do you know that you're a man? I guess because I got a dick. Can a man become a woman? <laughs> I'm not a woman, so I, I can't really answer that. Women only know what women are. Are you a uh, cat? No. Can you tell me what a cat is? Do you want to tell us what a woman is? I'm a biological woman that medically transitioned to appear like a male. I will never 
be a man. And so they go on the internet and they're told that all of their problems will be solved if they become a man. So you worry that there, there could be a sort of social contagion element of this? A teeny tiny bit, maybe. It got me at 42. Your child doesn't have a chance. And you're affirming it with hormones that have never been used in this way. Puberty blockers, which are completely reversible. Completely reversible. One of the drugs used is Lupron, right? Which mm -hmm. has actually been used to chemically castrate sex offenders. You know what? I'm not sure that we should continue with this interview. So you don't want to talk about the drugs that you give to kids or? How can they be removing the healthy breasts of 15-year-old girls? There are masculine girls. There are feminine boys. What are we going to do about that? Carve them up? How can this whole thing be happening, Matt? I wanted us to have a safe place to be able to talk about this. Part of me wants to ask why you care so much. I care about the truth. I care about children. I care about the women who are having their opportunities stolen from them. Is it transphobic to tell the truth? The interview's over. Let's turn off the cameras. Excuse me. Fair I just wanted to know what is a woman. And you're not going to find out. Based on what I'm saying, would you ever want to move to America? <laughs> they say no. Never. <laughs> During Pride Month, Good Morning America features Leah Thomas talking about why it's so empowering for a dude to beat the living hell out of the ladies in swimming competition. Joe Biden is puzzled by his low approval ratings and all the other things as well. And BTS visits the White House. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Today's show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Thousands of my listeners have already secured their network data. Join them at expressvpn.com slash Ben. Well, Joe Biden does not have a handle on inflation. He does not have a handle on your costs, but you should have a handle on your costs. One way to do that is to make sure you're not paying too much for your cell phone coverage, which is why I recommend that you check out Pure Talk today. The new numbers are in. You will not believe this because Pure Talk is saving families even more money than we previously thought. Listen to this. If you're still with Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile, your family could be saving over 9 hundred dollars a year. That is a lot of money. With Pure Talk, you're not going to have to compromise. You don't have to compromise coverage with America's most reliable 5G network. You don't compromise on price. You can choose the plan and price that is correct for you. And you don't have to compromise on values because you're not supporting a corporation that is woke and trying to cram its values down your throat. Instead, you're supporting a company whose customer service is right here in the United States and whose CEO served our country. I made the switch. I think you should too. Unlimited talk, text, six gigs of data, 30 bucks a month. Or you can get unlimited data with a hotspot and still save a fortune over the competitor. Go to puretalk.com, select a plan, then enter your promo code Shapiro, save 50% off your very first month of coverage. You can literally be switched over to Pure Talk service in less than 10 minutes. It is really easy. I've done it myself. Go to puretalk.com, enter promo code Shapiro to get started. Well, as I have been notified by my phone, because it is just an automatic alert that Apple now sends out. And as I've been notified by everyone in the media, and everyone in the Democratic Party, and everyone in the culture. Today is, of course, one of the most important days in the American calendar. It is the first day of LGBTQIA plus minus divided by sign, carrot, tilde, dollar sign, pound sign, hashtag, Pride Month. The ever-expanding rubric, the ever-expanding acronym, it's, it's, it's going to be all, all this month. I mean, because you never see gay people. In America. You never do. It's amazing. We never talk about these issues. They never break into the front pages. They're never of public relevance. They're only during Pride Month are, do, do we finally allow people to be who they are. And so we require an entire month in which to celebrate the fact that 
people of various sexual identities exist in the United States. It's not that that's on pretty much every TV show and all over your TV screen and all over your computer and all over pretty much every outlet of media. None of that. No, this is the month. And it is the most important month in the American calendar. I mean, no question about it. It used to be the Black Pride Month was really important. Black History Month, rather. It was very, very important. And fine. It, it used to be that Mother's Day and Father's Day were really important. And it, this, this blows them out of the water. I mean, this is this, it's so important. How important is LGBTQIA plus minus divided by a sign? ZMB open command option month. How important is it? It's so important that we have put up a giant pride flag at the embassy in the Holy See. Because to- this is what tolerance requires. Tolerance requires that you exhibit your anti-Catholic bigotry by taking a flag that symbolizes a grave sin in Catholic theology and putting it on your embassy in the Holy See, which is the Vatican. Now, make no mistake, there is no way the Biden administration, Biden State Department would ever do anything remotely like this in an Islamic country. They just wouldn't. And they wouldn't because, number one, Islamic countries would react rather badly to this. And so they are relying on the tolerance of the Vatican to not get super angry about this and to basically ignore it. But it does demonstrate the anti-Catholic bigotry, because, of course, the idea of doing this is to demonstrate that Catholic doctrine is just wrong. It's just wrong. And we are going to prove to you how wrong it is. And this is what a lot of LGBTQIA plus minus divided by a sign weird flag month is about. What it's about is not really the idea that people should be able to live how they choose in the United States. Everyone has pretty much said okay on that, right? Same-sex marriage has been legal in the United States since 2013. And, but when I say legal, it, it was not illegal in the sense that you could go to a liberal church and get a same-sex marriage performed well before 2013 in the United States. Civil unions have been legalized across the country for a very long time. All it meant in 2013 is the federal government now said you could not have a state law that privileged traditional marriage above same-sex marriage and said the traditional marriage is the only standard of marriage in the state approved by the state. Right. So that, but since 2013, right. So a decade for a decade, same sex marriage has been federally legal in the country to the exclusion of all state laws. For decades in this country, tolerance for lesbian, gay, bisexual Americans has been at all time highs. For decades, for, for increasingly, we now have an entire media and cultural infrastructure that suggests that if you're a man who believes you're a woman, you're not, in fact, a man who believes you're a woman, you're actually a woman. So. The idea that, that this is required, it is requisite, but that really, it's a culture war point, obviously. And the White House is happy to fight this culture war because they believe that roles and rules and duties and the idea of identity itself really needs to be recapitulated as part of a broader philosophical rubric under which this administration works. So the White House put out a statement. And the statement says this, during lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and intersex pride month, it keeps expanding, right? Queer and intersex. And the nice thing about the, the identifier queer is it apparently, it used to be questioning. I think now they, they changed it to queer. The, the reason that they changed it is it now encompasses pretty much everybody. And there's been new polling data out showing a huge number of young Americans identify as queer, but are also just straight. So everybody's looking for status as a sexual minority so they can claim victimhood status in the United States of America and so that they're not part of the evil group of heterosexual cisgender humans in the United States, who of course are, are affected by bigotry and haven't found their inner authenticity. According to the White House, during LGBTQ plus I, that's not making fun of it, that's the actual acronym, Pride Month, 
We reflect on the progress we have made as a nation in the fight for justice, inclusion, and equality, while reaffirming our commitment to do more to support LGBTQI plus rights at home and abroad. I will often say that America this is from Joe Biden directly. I will often say that America can be defined by one word, possibilities. This month, we celebrate generations of LGBTQI plus people who have fought to make possibilities of our nation real for every American. Today, the rights of LGBTQI plus Americans are under, under relentless attack, right? Here's the cultural idea. The cultural idea is if we don't teach the left-wing view of sexual orientation and gender identity to small children, then this means that people who are lesbian and gay and bisexual in the United States are under vicious, brutal assault by the government of the United States or by citizens of the United States. An onslaught of dangerous anti-LGBTQI plus legislation has been introduced and passed in states across the country, targeting transgender children and their parents and interfering with their access to healthcare. Okay, what they mean by this is that if you are a state and you say that you should not be able to perform gender mutilating surgery on a minor, then this means that you are denying healthcare to transgender children. If you say that a five-year-old should not be able to socially transition at school without informing the parents, this is somehow really bad. If you don't teach a bunch of three-year-olds that they can pick their own gender, then this is discriminatory under the Biden White House's view of the world. This month, Says the says Joe Biden, we remind the LGBTQI plus community they are loved and cherished. My administration sees you for who you are, deserving of dignity, respect and support. OK, so that line is really telling my administration sees you for who you are. Now, typically, when you say to somebody, I see you for who you are, what you mean is there is some objectively verifiable behavior or characteristic that I do not need your input to apprehend. If, if I see a black person walking down the street, I don't need their input to tell me that they are black. I can look at them and see they are black by the color of their skin, right? This is one of the things about immutable identity characteristics, physically, or even behavioral identity characteristics. Like say that you're a gay person, right? That's not immediately visible on you from the outside. But if you are with, if you're a man and you're with your husband or your woman and you're with your wife, you can tell that somebody is gay, obviously. Okay, but this is not what Joe Biden is saying. He is saying that we see you for who you are and who you are is ever changing. Who you are, is, in, is a bundle of identity characteristics that are subjective in their essence. And you can switch those, right? Those change they, they, depending on how you feel that day, what's going on in your mind, what's going on in your heart. And this is the anarchic philosophy that, allies, that lies behind the LGBTQ plus IA Pride Month rubric. Again, one of the things that's really fascinating about what's happened here is that this all started not with LGBTQI plus. I remember when it was just LGB. Right, when, when it was just lesbian, gay, bisexual. And then they added transgender. And once you do that, you have now fallen into a, a completely self-defeating argument. The truth is that LG and T are not remotely the same thing. In fact, the argument in favor of rights from government for LG people is very different than the case for T. And here's the rationale, okay? Because the, the, the idea for, for decades, because I was here when it happened, right? It's been happening over the course of my lifetime. I was born in 1984, and most of this happened during the 90s and 2000s. And the argument in favor of basically libertarianism with regard to LG people and their behavior, the argument was pretty simple. And the argument was that biological drives should not be regulated by society at large because these drives are inborn and innate. Right? This is the Lady Gaga, we're born this way. Right? Baby, we're born this way, so you shouldn't, you have nothing to say about that we're born this way. So this is why, according to the left, Sexual orientation and sexual behavior is very much akin to the immutable biological characteristic of race. Now, from a religious perspective, that's not true, right? From, from a traditional religious free will perspective, that's not true because any orientation that you have may be immutable and unchanging and maybe biological in, in, in root. But that does not mean that your behavior is immutable and unchanging because the basic root 
of all of Western philosophy is that you actually have the ability to change your own behavior despite your own desires and what you wish to do. And in fact, people do this all the time, right? We, people act in ways that run counter to their biological desires. But the case for LGB particularly was that if you have a desire that is immutable, it is unchanging, and it is going to be manifest in behavior, so society has nothing to say about it. So it is a biological, biological drive that is inborn and innate, which is at least somewhat internally consistent. However, now transgenderism makes the opposite case, which is that no matter what you are biologically, no matter what is inborn and innate about you, biologically speaking, it is completely irrelevant. You are a free-floating spirit in your own biology, and therefore, you can change your sex. You can move from being a man to a... There is nothing more innate or biological than your sex. It is innate and biological. It is written to, into literally every cell of your body, ironically, except for men, for, for some of their sperm cells, which have X chromosomes in them, right? But the, the basic notion that you can change your biology runs directly counter to the entire argument for LG. So it's very weird that LG and T have somehow been agglomerated under one sort of ideological flag. It doesn't make any sense. The arguments are completely polar opposite to one another. Homosexual orientation, for example, relies on a real distinction between men and women. If you're a man who prefers men, that assumes that the category man has a definition, and that definition is largely biological. When I say largely, I mean entirely biological. You don't see a lot of homosexual men who are attracted to biological women because there's a difference between men and women. Same thing for lesbian women. You don't see a lot of lesbian women who are like, that man right there is a woman, and I'm very attracted to him. Right? That's not how that works. But Transgender identity relies on the idea that these are all in flux. All these categories are in flux. The idea of pansexuality, that you are attracted to everything and anything and that it's ever changing and that you can change your sexual orientation at will, runs directly counter to the original argument on behalf of LG rights. So it's a very weird agglomeration. The only way that you can stick all of that together is to basically orient that around the idea that whatever I say I am, you must approve. And if you don't, you're a bigot. And there's no standard of biological reality that I can be held accountable to. And there, there's really no sort of objective understanding of words or biology or, or anything that we can share. Whatever I say I am, I am, and you need to leave me alone is the basic case that is being made by the Biden administration now and by the left more broadly. The only unifying feature of that is the idea that if there is any sort of societal role, that that is an imposition on you, that the authenticity that you feel on the inside any societal role that exists that runs counter to that, any demand by reality that what you say be true is an imposition on you and your sense of authenticity, and thus it must be blown up. That is an unsustainable argument. It's also an argument that's made at a lot of America's major universities. One place you're not going to hear that argument is at GCU. It's one of the best investments you can make in yourself. That's why Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country. Located in beautiful Phoenix, Arizona, GCU has not increased campus tuition since 2009. They've delivered over $310 million in scholarships to the online and campus students in 2021 alone. I visited GCU, by the way. It is a beautiful, beautiful campus. Great faculty, excellent student body. Grand Canyon University offers over 290 academic programs with over 250 of them online. So if you're looking to earn your degree online with supportive counselors and faculty from around the country, or you want to go to one of the top 20 best college campuses in America, it really is a spectacular place where you feel 
truly connected to a community, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer. See the kind of scholarships you can qualify for today. Too many educational institutions are dedicated to the woke stupidity that ruins young minds, not GCU. Check them out today. gcu.edu slash myoffer. See the kind of scholarships you qualify for. Again, I think one thing that you are going to see in the near future is that there will be separation inside the LGBTQ plus IA movement between LGB and T. I, I think that it's a bridge too far. They, they run completely counter arguments. Hey, the reason this is important is because if we are to share a body politic together, we need to have coherent arguments that we can make with one another. The argument over same-sex marriage was a coherent argument. I may have taken one side and people on the left may have taken another, but at least we were discussing basically the same thing. I may disagree with the premises, but at least the words had meaning. You could argue over, over behavior versus orientation. You could argue over the difference between race and sexual orientation. You could argue over whether society actually had an interest in preserving traditional marriage versus same-sex marriage. What are the benefits and drawbacks of that societally? Or you can argue about all those things. Those are all reasonable conversations. It is not a reasonable conversation to suggest that men can be women, women can be men. Biology matters sometimes, but not others. Woman is a category that matters when it comes to abortion, but it doesn't matter when it comes to how you identify. But you can't, these are not conversations anymore. It's a pure power play. It's, it's just purely power. And so when Joe Biden says things like, we see you for who you are, what he really means is we will validate whatever you believe you are so long as you vote for us. And if that means complete anarchy in the public space, because we can't even define words anymore, that's okay so long as you give Joe Biden power. That is a power play, right? It's a postmodernist construction of the language and of biology and of reality that is designed to give the experts power so that those experts can then give you what you want, which is the validation that you so desperately seek and you can cast all of the people who you disagree with as complete bigots for insisting on things like biological reality or actual argumentation about the nature of human choice and benefits to society versus individual pleasure. Right? Joe Biden doesn't want to have those conversations. It really is very simple. It's I'll give you what you want. You give me what I want. I want power. You want validation. Boom. Deal done. Okay, so the way this manifests is as complete absurdity. This absurdity has become now incredibly clear in the case of transgenderism, because transgenderism does run up directly against the evidence of your own eyes. So Good Morning America decided to finally sit down with Leah Thomas. And Leah Thomas has become sort of the poster child for the trans debate because Leah Thomas is very obviously a biological man. Leah Thomas is an enormous dude. Leah, Leah Thomas is, is not a woman in any real sense. Leah Thomas, there's no evidence that Leah Thomas is a woman. Leah Thomas is a man who has had some hormone treatments and believes that he is a woman based on nothing, because that is literally an incoherent argument. I cannot believe I am something that I am not when I've never had the experience of being that other thing. If I say that I am a cat, there's no way for that to be true. I've never experienced what it's even like to be a cat. How could I say that I am a cat? First of all, objectively, I'm not a cat. Second of all, if I've never had the experience of being a cat, I can't say that I feel like a cat on the inside, because again, if you've never had the experience, that, that's like saying, I feel like I'm on the moon. You, you don't, though, because you don't even know what the comparison basis is. In order for you to make the comparison basis, you have to have had some experience with the other thing, but you, have, you don't because you can't be that thing. It is logically self-defeating and incoherent. So Leah Thomas is, of course, interviewed by Good Morning America as a complete hero. And um, Leah Thomas explains how the reason that he is now racing against women and beating the hell out of them is for his own subjective sense of self-determination and, and self-realization. 
which is at the root of all of this, right, as we've been discussing. Subjective sense of self-determination and authenticity is significantly more important than any reality. It's more important than mistreating other people. It's more important than defeating a bunch of biological women who have innate biological limitations Leah Thomas will never have because Leah Thomas went through puberty. And so uh, here's what you get. The self-obsessed delusions of, of this is, I mean, this is self-obsessed and, uh, self and, um, and delusional to believe that because you believe you are a woman, therefore you should be able to compete against women and defeat them. I knew there would be scrutiny against me if I uh, competed as a woman. Um, I was prepared for that. Trans people don't transition for athletics. We transition to be happy and authentic and our true selves. The women who signed the letter anonymously said that they absolutely supported your right to transition, but they simply think it's unfair for you to compete against cisgender women. You can't go halfway and be like, I support trans women and trans people, but only only to a certain point where if you support trans women as women and they've met all the all the NCA requirements, and then I don't know if you can really say something like that. Trans women are not a threat to women's sports. Oh, uh, um, okay, so first of all, here I am. I am a beautiful feminine woman. And my suggestion is that as a woman, in my authentic self, I'm, I'm now more authentic than I was when I was living in consonance with the biological reality that gave me a voice deeper than the basso profundo of many opera bases. It is, it is very, as a, as a beautiful feminine woman living her truth, I say that it is incumbent on actual biological women to now accept that I'm going to defeat them in the pool. Ironically, Leah Thomas then suggested, and Leah Thomas's voice is significantly deeper than my own, by the way. It is, it, Leah Thomas then suggested that he should be able to race against the women because biological transition had made him slower, right? The estrogen treatments had made him slower and weaker. So here's the thing, dude. The thing is that when you suggest that estrogen treatments have made you slower and weaker, what do you think an entire puberty of estrogen does? Which is what women have. What do you think that like being a woman does to your body that is different than maybe going through puberty as a male? Perhaps these are different things. Why it's almost as though you, you're like right on the cusp of noticing that there is a biological difference between men and women that should prohibit you from number one, being a woman because you cannot be. And number two, from racing against the women. Okay, but we're all supposed to just chat. We're supposed to not only look at this and, and not laugh at it or, or pretend that it's not absurd because it is absurd. We are supposed to cheer for it. This is true heroism. It's not solipsistic, narcissistic navel gazing in which my authentic self must be acted out on the world stage and all the world must validate me, including me defeating people who are of a different biological category, women, through sheer dint of my masculinity. No, it's not about that. You need to cheer for me for my self-actualization. And that means that the entire world must mirror my perspective on life. Right? And this carries through. This sort of illogic and insanity carries through to every aspect of how the left now treats sex and gender and sexual orientation. The, the idea being that you're, you're, the only thing that matters is that inner sense of authenticity. And not only that, we have to teach it to your kids. It's very important that we teach your kids that the only thing that matters is an inner sense of authenticity as opposed to societal roles and duties. Because those societal roles and duties, once imposed, will now create unhappiness for kids. Truly what we need is instead to free your kids of all those constraints 
by force if necessary, without your permission in school. And, you know, look, we do have to call out um, our sisters in this struggle um, who don't always vote in alignment with the folks you see on the screen here. Uh, that is very frustrating. Uh, Carmen, we saw a lot of this. I mean, when we think about this is when Congress passed the 19th Amendment. But when we go back and look at what was happening around that time, there were people like Elizabeth Stanton and, and other women who were really focused on white women um, and thought white women were the priority. Never mind what black men are going through. Never mind what people of color were going through and actually said that out loud. Um, it was, of yeah. course, uh, Sojourner Truth um, who gave the, the famous speech, uh, ain't, ain't I a Woman, um, at the convention where they're discussing the 19th. I want to ask you, Carmen, I feel like um, there's still a divide today in the conversations that we have about women's rights with some of, um, you know, white women continuously voting overwhelmingly Republican. Lucy Caldwell's a, a show regular, and she gave one of the best and most honest answers, I thought, on why that happens. I want you to take a listen, Carmen, and then I'll ask you about it on the other side. A real problem is that Republican women are in this mode, and specifically white women, where in a way they do benefit from the patriarchy, mm -hmm. right? And so they mm -hmm. are feeling or participating in the same kind of story of economic insecurity or, you know, uh, a, a right or a privilege that they believe their white husbands and sons and yeah. fathers deserve is, is going to a person of color, right? So they have a stake in the old paradigm that yeah. is harmful. They also, at the same time, it's it's good to be a white woman because mm -hmm. white women also benefit from the progress that Democrats have worked to assure for <laughs> white women. Carmen, I, I loved her, the honesty in that answer because when she said it's good to be a white woman, you know, we, we are not impacted in the same way uh, as, as other people. You dealt with a little bit of this in the Women's March. Talk to me about where we are today. Are we more unified today than we were 103 years ago? Or do those still, those same divides, do they still exist? Well, I think we have to understand that patriarchy isn't upheld only by men. Um, not one of the eight women. Today, life on Earth is disappearing faster than the days when dinosaurs breathed their last. But for a very different reason. Us homo sapiens are turning out to be as destructive a force as any asteroid. Earth's intricate web of ecosystems thrived for millions of years as natural paradises. Till we came along, paved paradise, and put up a parking lot. Our assault on nature is killing off the very things we depend on for our own lives. The stark reality is that there are simply too many of us, and we consume way too much, especially here at home. It will take a massive global effort to make things right, but the solutions are not a secret. Control population, recycle, reduce consumption. In, in 2015, we've still failed to address the climate problem. We're going to see more floods, more droughts, more wildfires. Flames cover hundreds of square miles. We expect more intense hurricanes. 
well, how warm is it going to get? How much will sea level rise? We don't really know where the end is. Temperatures have hit dangerous levels. Agricultural production is dropping because temperatures are rising. There's about one billion people who are malnourished. That number just continually grows. It's June 8th, 2015. One carton of milk is $12.99. Gas has reached over $9 a gallon. I'm scared right now, but I have to get this.
one thing, one theme that I'm thinking a lot about right now is um, I think there's this cultural fear. We see it a lot in, around don't say, don't talk about privilege, don't freak the white child out. Um, so because of that cultural fear, it, like in the research that I've done to write the book, I definitely found a level of silence among white parents of white children. Um, so I think, you know, what, what we can do now is really help caregivers understand that helping their white child know the story of resistance and the story of movements of people coming together that is that are always so diverse, but movements that are led by people of color and how do you take a back seat and be quiet and learn? I mean, even that shift, th those kinds of learnings, that's what I'm really interested in right now is sort of being quieter and helping people of privilege learn how to be a little quieter. Um, and that's, I think that's, a, that's a, going to be a big challenge for us, um, but it's, I think it's important. I think that's a big way to support. I need all my, if you, if you know, and you think you can do it like we do it, I want you to come up here real quick. If you think you can do it, if you think you can walk the runway with the girl, who wants to be a diva for the day? Yeah, everybody come back here with me. Walk for me. We're gonna let you walk. Who you, you pick who you wanna walk the runway with. You pick who you wanna walk the runway with. Okay, go with her. You guys go with her. How about, okay, one person can go with me. Who wants to go first? You wanna go with me? All right, this is my partner in crime today. You ready to do this? On the count of three, here we go. One, two, three, let's go. progress flag specifically represents the need for continued progress in the areas of acceptance and inclusion for uh, all members of the LGBTQ plus 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 community. And I have those students in my classes at the school. So teaching that uh, acceptance and inclusion in my class room is absolutely the place to be teaching that. Insert 
here long awkward pause while I try to imagine why that wouldn't be the place to teach that. But I really think, to be perfectly honest, that comments like this come from people who actually don't really understand what's going on in the classroom, what's going on with our students, and what we're really doing, and what that flag really means. That's a great question, sweetheart. Um, so binary is just a word that basically just means two. It's a fancy word for two. They use it with computers when they're coding uh, for computer programs. Um, and if you hear the word binary, it basically just means that there's two sides. So a lot of people think that gender is something that's binary, meaning that there's just boys and there's just girls. But a lot of people don't feel that way. Some people feel like they might fall in the middle of being a boy and a girl. They might feel like they're both a boy and a girl. They might feel like they're neither. There's lots of different ways that people might feel. And when they feel that way, it's just called non-binary because it means that they don't fit in what people think is boy or girl. Hope that helps. Are you ready? Yeah. On the 6th of March, we welcomed our beautiful twins into the world. A boy called Arlo and a girl called Emerald. The first one they said was, this is a girl. I just remember your face just like lighting up like, this mm -hmm. is amazing. And then the next one was on, this is a boy. It was like a jackpot. You know, one of each, this is the perfect combination here. Yeah, <laughs> look at daddy flipping. So now they're four years old and they identify as two boys. The first time that I realized Stormy wanted to identify as male was about roughly two and a half. But it's not really, he said, I want to be a boy. He said, I am a boy. And that is the difference. My name is Stormy and I'm four years old. I feel like a boy and I want to be a boy. Sometimes people call me girl. Do they? How does that make you feel? Sad. I can't remember the exact moment it switched over, but there was that point where I thought, you know what, this isn't just, this isn't just a phase. This is not a little girl we're looking at here, it's a little boy. He started being unhappy with being dressed as a girl, so he started being unhappy with wearing dresses. Hair clips were a big no-no. Mm. Didn't like hair clips, didn't like the pigtails. He was genuinely upset at being dressed as a girl. Before I had children, and certainly before the last couple of years, this whole thing that I'm saying, I, I would have thought it was ridiculous. Honestly, I would. I would have, I would have watched me and said, no, you, you, you're crazy. You're making it up. You're abusing a child. We constantly say, are you a boy today? Or do you feel like you, you might? Because I don't want him to feel like he's took himself down a route.
Damn. You're from St. Louis. Oh, my mama. Louisville. Atlanta. Yes, sir. New Orleans. What's happening? Vietnam. Go ahead and fall out to my right. Here we Your go. Left. Florida kicks. Go. I'm going to go A1. Hurry up. Damn. Hurry up. Has to see it through, my boy. Young boy. Who the fuck? This fucking dickhead. Hey, yo, that's me, OG. Probably feel that's you? Yeah, that's me. Stop drawling and open up my shit. Who the hell sending you damn cheesesteak Senate? Move them or you private. My old head from around the way sit them jaws, you know what I mean? He be looking out. You gotta smell good and basic for these young jaws, you hear me? Go and fall out of goddamn formation, private, and start goddamn pushing. Push on your moms, Nick. What the fuck is this? Mr. Marcus's penis pump paraphernalia. <coughs> private Marcus. Yes, drill sergeant. What the hell is this? It's organic beat your meat cream, drill sergeant. Add two drops to the male genitalia. What the fuck bag you in, Private? I'm in my healthy bag, Drill Sergeant. It comes GMO free with no triglycerides. What the hell were you gonna do? Shit, I was gonna wait to fire guard when everybody sleep, go what? to latrine and commence the handyman combat. Don't fall out with your goddamn battle buddy. Start fucking pushing. And when I see that Drill Sergeant backbone, I'm gonna kick his fucking ass. Oh shit, her boyfriend trying to know. Cause he's a bitch, and I'm from the hood. Hey, yo, I got And he this. don't want no smoke. Oh snap, they trying to line drill sign up? I need to see this. Drill sign look like he got hands too. They probably gonna jump that motherfucker. We gonna see about that, Private. Hey, Bad O. Yo, yo, yo. Where that trash can at? Right there? Damn near. Kobe. Kobe. We gonna see about that, Private. Hey, Private Slime Ball. Right here, Drill Sergeant. What the fuck is this, Private? Is a shirt commemorating my active duty service, Drill Sergeant? Well, no shit. How the hell are you gonna get a DD-214 shirt? Your ass is getting chapped out of the army, right? So that's what we do now, right? We lie to our recruiter, the shit get back, now we gotta chat your stupid ass out, and you gonna go back to your neighborhood and lie about your private service? Freedom of speech, drill sergeant. Not on my watch, private. Two weeks. Uh, Platoon! That's shit! Huh! Ha! Right! Man! Man.